0: Welcome to Chi Alpha at the University of Virginia. This podcast is a collection of messages designed to help you grow in our three anchors of real devotional life, real community, and real responsibility. We hope that you enjoy this message and that it encourages you in your spiritual growth. Growing up, my religious context is what I lovingly describe as fundamentalist-ish. Um, and I say that to my mom and dad's face, so they kind of know how I'm you know, deconstructing and reconstructing. I just grew up in like a really rigid system, and sometimes it was really helpful to me to have a reverence of God, and sometimes it was also just kind of silly. Before I was homeschooled, because I got kind of like homeschool card checked yesterday in the arts and crafts room, someone was like, were you homeschooled your whole life? And I was like, well, let's not get divisive here. We need to stick together in this cultural moment. And I was like, only like three years, like he's not a real one. He's not a real one. So I had to like leave with my balloon animal and just go somewhere else for the rest of free time. But like my parents came to radically know Jesus when I was around four years old, and it changed the trajectory of our entire family story. But my parents did that thing where when they come to know Christ, you're just so wanting to get it right, and you're so passionate, you don't intend to just apply it in a little bit of strange ways. So this was before I was homeschooled. I was in public school. And um, I remember my mom pulled me out of school for April Fool's Day, Because she read in Proverbs not to associate with fools. This was before like religious exemptions were a thing. She literally called the principal and said, this violates my conscience and scripture. And he was like, are you talking about Halloween? And she's like, I'm I'm not even there yet. She's like, I'm talking about April Fool's Day. Proverbs says, do not associate and keep company with fools. So I read my Bible with my mom that whole day no hyperbole, true story. Our church also had this rec baseball league called the CBL, the Christian Baseball League. Did we have real jerseys? No. Did we have real baseball fields? No. Did we keep score? No. I was 12 years old playing baseball thinking that keeping score was against God's will. Cuz the Christian Baseball League like, you didn't keep score is all about character development. I got a trophy at the end of the year that said most valuable player. I was so happy. And then I realized everyone on the team got one. I'm not joking. Everyone on the team got the most valuable player trophy. I'm, I, this is not like a bit. I mean, it's a bit, but it's like my story. And on the trophy, it said, you know, Philippians 4.13, which I, I knew in that moment, that's what Paul had envisioned. When he was in prison speaking to the church at Philippi, talking about contentment in and every season, in feast or famine, being imprisoned or talking to those that were kind of religious rulers, he wasn't actually talking about finding contentment in Christ. He was talking about winning a game without keeping score in the Christian Baseball League. I just can't believe like the secrets of the Bible became unlocked in that duplicate trophy that I took home. Isn't that crazy? Years later, I talked to the coach and I was like, hey, Brother Ron, I don't know why we called him that. That's a whole other thing to deconstruct. But I was like, "Hey, brother Ron, uh, it's kind of weird we didn't keep score." But like, do you think Philippians four thirteen is really four thirteen is really about the, like the CBL? Like, because it's on like the little, like they paid someone to put it on the the trophy. And I think he was like, "No, I don't think it's really about that." But then I was like, and he was like, oh, "I was a long time ago." <laughs> I was like, super cool leadership move. It's a long time ago. Then that's the end of the story. I mean, Brother Ron still supports me for Chi Alpha. I love that. I don't know if he knows I'm telling this story, so hopefully he doesn't find the podcast. But what he did teach me is that we do need to bring our whole selves into the family of God that as this weekend we've been trying to kind of refocus on what community could look like, redefine how meaningful friendship can be, rediscover that worship leads to freedom, but not just for me. Coach Brother Ron of the CBL modeled that and modeled it imperfectly because when my parents came to Christ, the church, this community became their new family. So yeah, we had church services, so many per week. It was like almost M&L every night. We had, we played baseball together clearly, but didn't keep score. Wanted to honor the Lord. But he modeled for me what it meant to be all in with a group of people, no matter the messiness. Even when they misquoted scripture and got you excited about being the MVP, and then you realize, man, everyone's the MVP. And it brings us to our text for today. It's another one of those passages I think that we can memorize, that we can recite. But my concern for my own core group and our own fellowship is that we would miss the point of this very popular passage. And it's Romans 8, 28. I know I'm I'm taking a little bit of a curve. I'm not reading from Luke. I'm operating outside my strengths. But I just have this on my heart, and it's interesting because I know someone yesterday talked to one of the pastoral staff saying, I feel like this is on our heart for our fellowship. And and the staff was able to say, actually, this is what Blaine's message is about tomorrow. So it's this confirmation that maybe God is trying to get our attention ever so gently, but ever so urgently. Romans 8, 28. And we know that in all things... God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. My students don't have cars, so they just put, like, their bumper stickers on their water bottles. But maybe this is a bumper sticker for you. Maybe it's in your Instagram bio. Maybe this is a life verse for you. And it's one of those verses, I think, that can bring us a lot of comfort, But the longer I'm following Jesus, the more that I realize that there can be things in my life that are comfortable and yet untrue, and there are things that can be true and also be unsettling. God is working in all things for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. The reality is that if we took a deep dive in this one verse, we recognize that there's a lot of things happening. According to this text, it's those who love him who are called or living in alignment of his purpose that he's working out the good for. It does not say he's working out all things good for all people. That may or may not be the reality, but this passage, Paul's writing to the church at Rome is saying that if we love God and if we're responding purposefully in our lives to the calling before us, the calling to be Christ's ambassadors, the calling to be the beloved as now one would say, the calling to be ministered to in our spirit before we become ministers of the spirit to others that he's working the realities of our life. He's weaving a tapestry. He's helping set the table. He's preparing the stage. He's gathering a cast of characters. He is preparing us for a specific moment, and a moment of good. In a world of confusion and complacency, of chaos and cynicism, I'm drawn to this biblical idea of good or goodness. And yet, it's one of those words that we all bring our own assumptions and baggage into. When I read this, it's tempting to think that God is operating with the same dictionary that I'm using. Because for me, good seems to indicate a level of comfort in my own lens, in my own life. Sometimes good becomes a slightly christianized version of the American dream. It's about comfort and safety and security. People often ask me what was the greatest shift I saw in the life of my parents when they came to Christ, and it was that their end goal changed. They moved from being obsessed with financial security and achievement to living lives of generous generosity that were no longer about themselves. That has an impact on a six-year-old, a four-year-old, an eight-year-old. My siblings and I saw the worldview shifting because they became about the things of the kingdom. Did they still go to work? Yes, but with different motivations, Colossians 3.23. Did they still show up at family functions? Yes, but with an eye to meet the hurting needs in relatives all around us. Were they still good neighbors? Absolutely, and they took an extra step To be generous, not just in finance, but in time. They walked around now with purposefulness, but also a willingness to be inconvenienced. Paul answers for us the question of how God defines good in this very passage. Because all of us are bringing our own ideas, our own hopes, our dreams, our aspirations into this text. And it's not necessarily wrong to have those things, but it's not accurate to assume that God has those same things as you. Later in this chapter, he talks about the trajectory of our lives and stories of believers being conformed to the image of the Son. That God's definition of good is Is being conformed to the image of Jesus. And this is a radical idea. This is a surprising reality. This is a scandalous predicament. And Paul later addresses it in the same chapter because he says he did not, the Father, even spare his own Son along with all things to give us graciously all. He's saying, that God's definition of good is us looking like his son, and then he's reminding them of the life that the son was given to lead. And Paul's trying to, without being crass, he's trying to be brutally honest that the cross is part of the equation. I love how a missionary friend of mine reminds me that I need to recognize that Jesus went to a cross for me, but he also modeled how I was to carry my own cross. That as believers, we cannot escape the reality of the cross. That all of us want a miracle, but very few of us want to be in a situation that requires one. Everyone desires resurrection life, but few of us are willing for things in our own hearts and minds to experience death. It's why often on campus I wear a cross necklace and it has a big cross on it and then a smaller cross on it. Clearly the bigger one's for Jesus, the smaller one's for me. But it's to remind me that self-denial is still a part of the gospel imperative. Earlier in the chapter, as he's talking about present suffering and future glory, Paul sums it up like this, that God desires for us to walk in maturation For his glory. So, unfortunately, good here isn't talking about my Kia telluride without saran wrap. It's not talking about my life becoming better, it's talking about my life looking more like Jesus a cruciform life, a crossword journey. It's why we see in the gospel accounts baptism so specifically tied to this idea of burial and resurrection. Paul, in another letter, talks about, "Just like we are with him in his suffering, so also we'll be with him in His glory." As we think about recommitment, I think we have the opportunity to have an honest conversation of what are we committing to? I tell my core group often, if I am following a Jesus that looks like me, thinks like me, acts like me, votes like me, never disagrees with me, never surprises me, I am not actually following Jesus. I'm following like a children's Crayola drawing of Jesus that looks a lot like a balded dude with weird crew necks and bearded. And I'm just saying it's Jesus so I can kind of pull that trump card when life gets tough. But God is saying that he is working all things for the good or for the reality that we would be molded to look like Jesus. That if we love him and we've been called according to his purpose, that God's desire for goodness is our maturity in his glory. And Paul is the perfect example that that may or may not include times of immense discomfort that you risk rejection the reality is that every time you step out in faith to fight for someone's freedom they might not respond well and yet we want our definition of good our reality to be based not on our own understanding but on what god has designed I remind my core group that we could read it like this. And we know that in all things, God works so that we would look like Jesus as we love him and have been called according to his purpose. And my core group guys are the first to point out, well, that's not as fun of a memory verse. (laughs) I'm not going to put that on my laptop now. And yet the rallying cry for the heart of Paul throughout his entire ministry is that we would enter in an abundant, spirit-led resurrection life with Christ, but to do so, we would take the path of the cross. That we'd be willing to walk in self-denial, not self-destruction, but not not self-centeredness. And that we would do so in that Jesus has modeled how to do that. He is the prototype, according to Jonathan Martin. He has given us an example, a blueprint. That's why when Jesus, in the gospel account, says you will do even greater things than you've seen, he's not speaking in hyperbole. He's saying, I have given you the blueprint, and the blueprint is my life. My parents, early on in their spiritual journey, thought that clearly the book of Proverbs was the blueprint for their life. I got a free day out of school because of it. And Proverbs is incredibly helpful. And I love the picture, the tension between Lady Wisdom and Lady Folly, but it's all pointing to the portrait of Jesus. Jesus is the blueprint. Jesus is the story that we're invited into and the story that we're invited to image. You probably already know this, but a lot of scholars and commentators would say that the term Christian started in first century Antioch, and it really means little Christ, and it was initially meant in a derogatory way. And the early church begins to kind of redeem that term because they realize, in fact, that was their call, to be little Christ's, to be with the hurting and the oppressed, to speak life and truth, to live in that delicate tension of grace. And the recognition that sin can break us and cause us to be separated from the Father. Some days I wish that God defined good the way I define good. Can I be that honest? I love what Spurgeon once said as he was reflecting on one of my favorite Psalms, and the line is Deep calls unto deep. And Spurgeon says that there's a level of depth of our suffering that if we'll allow it, God will fill it with that same measure of grace. And then Spurgeon goes on to say, I don't wish to have been a normal man with a normal existence because if I didn't have the sufferings that I had, I wouldn't have the measure of grace that I've received. Back surgery one, I didn't really love that passage that note from Spurgeon. Back surgery too, I'm like, maybe he's right. Gallbladder surgery, I'm like, what are you doing, Lord? Why is my body so mean to me? Oh, and an anxiety disorder too. This is fun. It's not actually fun. That's just how I was processing humor because life was hard. And I realized that I had to allow God to give me a picture of redemption in which God wasn't Wasn't causing those things for my own development, but he was certainly willing to use them for my own maturity. I was at a conference recently, and some of your staff were there, and the, the topic was healing, and I was very encouraged and challenged. I don't know if they know this, but um, it was also the, the first time I ever got a migraine. Talk about an awkward moment. I'm like texting my pastor friends like, hey, I can't make the last session. I, I got a migraine. And I know you guys think I'm always funny, but I'm not joking. And I know the topic is healing, and this is awkward because I'm a professional Christian, but I'm stuck in bed. And I want to receive prayer, but I also need to sleep. And I'm going to see my doctor, but I also believe in healing. I can't explain to anyone, even to myself in the mirror, why my body seems to hate me in every new which way. But I can search and fight and find the goodness that God might want to bring into my story, And sometimes, I don't say I'm feeling like this all the time, but sometimes His goodness shines brighter when I realize how broken I am. And part of me wishes I could have come to the session today, and be like, "Y'all, I slept really well. Man, my back feels great." Yes. Let's take that group photo. That's, that's not what happened. I woke up in pain again. I had to get over that first 30 seconds of being awake, feeling surprised and frustrated. And then I texted Blair, I'm on my way to the main auditorium session. Excited to see you. She's a good friend. And then I tried to go on with my day, trying to find his goodness and grace in it all. And that's not really like a tweetable story. (laughs) And it's not a story that I would like hope or wish on anyone. But I think I'd want to say that if that is your story, God can still be bringing good into the imperfections if we change our definition of good to everything being fixed here, to everything being made right in here. That he's bringing me in alignment to Jesus who carried a cross who was willing to walk a path of self-denial, who did not consider himself God, but was the suffering servant, did not consider himself above, but was willing to teach, to enter our broken mess and neighborhood, as Peterson would term it. And some days I don't know what to do with that. Some days I don't know what of that should I share, what of that should I just journal about. But I think as I relate to this passage, I just can't be dishonest with my own experience that I had to shift from, God, I'm disappointed that you're not being good in my life to maybe I'm not defining good in the appropriate terms. That's just what I had to do to stay in the faith, just to be real honest. Like in my own journey, I had to realize that I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus was real, that the encounters I had actually happened and that he was faithful and when my reality started looking different than my theology i didn't want to jettison my faith and my belief but i had to change the way i viewed my reality i had to change the way i viewed my my perception of reality had to shift because i want to be anchored in scripture i want to be anchored in who god says he is even when there's a dissonance even when there's a delay between what i know is true and what I experienced. That song that we sang this morning, um, I, I, I love it. It's like, I, I thought by now the walls would fall. But, but you're still good and you're going to do it again. You're gonna, I'm going to still show up. I also love the worship leaders y'all have, by the way. I, I went over to Zach and I was like, yeah, you can clap. That's cool. I was like, I honestly was like, Zach, I don't know how I haven't met them. They're like fourth year staff, right? Exactly. Like they're fourth year students. So I was like, what? Those people are awesome. I was like, how did I not meet them for four years? I've been on staff. They slayed it. They slayed it. It was awesome. We know that in all things, God is working for our good, which he defines is our maturity and his glory. If we love him and respond to the call according to his purpose. His purpose is that we would look more like him. His purpose is that we would be like Jesus. Led by the Spirit, with our ear to the will of the Father. And that wherever we go, we would make disciples. Whatever we're doing, we would do it for his glory. And that as we engage the brokenness in the world, or even the brokenness in our own bodies, that we would be drawn to the completeness and sufficiency of Jesus. that if we get Jesus, that is enough. And it's enough, especially in the moments when we still want more. And he wants us to contend. Several times in the gospel accounts, we're reminded that God is somehow honored by our persevering prayers. He wants us to approach him with shameless audacity, is how the NLT puts one of those passages. So it's not that he doesn't want us to ask questions, but he does want to question the state of our heart. In some ways, it's the difference between Job's questions and Job's friend's questions. I'll be honest, I ask my core group this all the time. I say, are you asking me that question, Justin, to critique me or to learn? Because it's been a long day, buddy. If it's to critique me, just say it as a statement. Just critique me then. And let's not pretend it's a question. Now, if it's a question to learn or to grapple or to understand, absolutely, man, let me buy your coffee. <laughs> but if it's the first one, I just don't, I just, I'm sorry, I just can't be Jesus for you right now. It's just too much. Now, Jesus isn't as harsh as me, okay? But I think he does want to know what is behind the question. Are we looking for reasons to stay engaged or reasons to disengage? Disengage. The psalmists are great examples of bringing their questions and then the end of most psalms end with them returning even when their questions were left unanswered to the goodness of God. The goal of following Jesus isn't to no longer have any questions is to allow our questions to somehow grow us closer to Jesus. Last night I shared briefly and didn't finish the story of how I feel like sometimes the enemy will kind of say things that are half-truths that will really distract me or discourage me. One of the things that I'm praying for out of this weekend is for my brother to return to faith. I have two siblings, my sister, she's a Christian performing artist, I'll explain that later in Chicago, um, so she's on that support-raising journey. Uh, and my brother is more like, how would I term it, like, atheist, anarchist. So Thanksgiving's really fun. Um, and, and we have great conversations, and we have fun. But one day the enemy was, like, whispering to me. And the enemy could be my insecurities, however you want to term it, whatever you're comfortable with. The story will still hit, okay? Blaine, you spend all your life ministering to students and seeing transformation in people like Trevor and Naomi and Zach and Daniel but you can't even reach your own brother, Spencer. I was like, oh my gosh, that's very early for this kind of mess. <laughs> and then day after day, it's like, man, you spend all your time engaging in interfaith conversations, pursuing people in your core group, and you're seeing God move, but man, you can't even like, reach the one young adult left in your family. And I had to realize that somehow, some way, God was both honored at the work that I was doing. He could use even that discouragement to remind me, oh, I should make sure that I'm positioned well to have conversations with my brother. And it's okay to contend for more for my brother. It hurt so much because the enemy like, wasn't making stuff up or my insecurities weren't making stuff up. I wasn't like, oh no, my brother's a pastor somewhere. <laughs> That's a lie. I was like, no, actually my brother is very far from God. And yet, because I know that God's goodness is me being conformed to Jesus, what became an incredibly huge discursion became an opportunity for prayer and contending. And I get to share that story in a lot of places that I go, because then I get to borrow your faith, because hopefully tomorrow you'll think of me for a moment and won't think of all the weird and funny things I said, but will think of the biblical truths that I tried to bring, and then you'll also pray for my brother Spencer. Because I believe that sometimes we will receive discouragement in the very area that God designs us to step into. So instead of me disengaging from my brother, instead of me feeling ashamed at family gatherings that I'm a pastor that can't even convert one young adult brother, that instead he's calling me to press in and step in appropriately. To live out the gospel and talk about Jesus and hope for freedom for one more. Part of our responsibility, you've probably picked it up by now in each of our sessions, is that God's goodness in our lives should move through our lives. And it's so big and magnificent that it isn't just designed for us. And somehow it also grows when we share it. We have to step out of that scarcity mentality, right? I don't know if you've ever dealt with this. Sometimes my core group will deal with this. Like if I invite someone new, it'll change core group, I'm like, I know more people will hear about Jesus. That's actually a good thing. I had a, one guy recently tell me, like, man, if I, if I bring my roommate, why well, like I kind of keeping my faith life separate? And if I bring my roommate, like, it's going to kind of blur the lines. I was like, you know, actually, that's the goal. It's the, the blurred lines are community. That's actually great. We're going in the right direction. But I understand the hesitation because when we try to live an authentic, transparent, integrated life, we're also giving people the permission to see when we miss it. One of the things that we're trying to do in our community in a culture of competition in a moment when everyone seems hyper critical and cynical is how do we practice small and big acts of hospitality to model in a very busy city to model what it looks like to just be with people and sit with people and root for people and get to know their name and story. I had some pastors that support our Kaiafa call me one time, and they were asking what was, like, the most <laughs> effective way to reach our campus. And they were like, is it street preaching? I'm like, nope. They're like, is it carrying the cross through campus? I'm like, that doesn't work in our context. Um, they're like, is it, you know, like, giving away free Pop-Tarts? I was like, I've tried that. They just thank us for the Pop-Tarts, ask if they're vegan, and then go away. Uh, they're not necessarily, like, changed internally. I said, but if we look at every story that led to water baptism, nine out of ten, it's because somebody found someone to root them on. The big joke on our campus at American is like, oh, you speak five languages, I speak six. Sorry, you're not going to get the internship, I am. It's this culture of competition. And Chi Alpha can become this space where someone will cheer you on, will root for you, will affirm you will create a moment of hospitality before you prove yourself. And at the expense that because there's someone else shining brightly, you may not shine as well in the eyes of others. To me, that reminds me of Jesus, how he constantly elevated the disciples, used them and empowered them to minister, and then coached them along the way. There's those few gospel accounts where Jesus kind of sends them on a little mission, and then they come back. And I'm kind of thinking like, Initially, I'm like, Jesus could have just gone himself and probably done a better job. But he was also forming the people on the mission. In other words, we mature through ministering to others. When we teach something, we learn it more than when we're just students of it. I want to pray this passage over us as we close out this last sermon, this last message. So enter a posture of prayer, and don't worry, I'm not going to turn into an illustration or judge your posture of prayer. That was an earlier session. God, we know that in all things, you are working for good. For the good of those who love you and who have been called according to your purpose. God, we thank you that you have invited us to be conformed to the image of your son. This passage reminds us that we have been brought and liberated from bondage and decay into freedom and glory of the children of God. Help me, help us to enter this story to let go of our own ideas and definitions of good, and to be willing like Jesus to walk on the crossword journey, to live a cruciform life, knowing that resurrection is coming, but self-denial and death are a part of that journey. And God, I pray for my brother Spencer. I borrow the faith of my new friends here that God that somehow some way that you would draw him back to you. God I pray that as I've asked him what keeps him away from you, sadly he mentions its other believers and how they've treated him. Would you redeem those wounds? And would I not abdicate my role in his life no matter how uncomfortable? Would I not wait for another pastor or relative to step in? But would you give me courage? So that Spencer might call on your name again.
1: Amen. Can we give Blaine another hand? Thank him for this weekend. It's been really cool for me to have Blaine here to share with you guys because a lot of what he's talking about is Things that have formed me into the person that I am today and to see that being planted. Nothing he's said this weekend is new, but can be said in a way that realigns our hearts to the mission that God gives us. Something that we hear often in Kyle is that what God does in you, he wants to do through you. And I think that every talk we've heard from Blaine is a picture of what God does in us, in this room, he wants to do through us. And so part of my role on our team is to, how do I I help our fellowship think through ways to look outward, (laughs) to to live out our name as Christ's ambassadors? That's who we are as Chi Alpha, Christ's ambassadors. And what that means is our our calling is not to sit in rooms like this, is not to sit at the hub. That, That is our embassy, if you'd like to call it that. But the, the role of an ambassador is to step outside of their embassy into the world that they've been, they've been entrusted to, that they are responsible for, to be a representative of the kingdom that they represent to those people. And so it's not just my job or Pete's job or the staff's job to be Christ's ambassadors. That's all of us collectively. So we come to weekends like this to be refreshed and reminded of that calling and then sent out. And so this year, I kind of want to give us a challenge as we leave this weekend. It's less, there's this word that Blaine mentioned that I I feel like has been coming up a lot in different areas of my life. Different preachers have spoken on it, different moments of discipleship. It's the word hospitality. When you walked in, you saw in your seat a a new Kyle for Resource, And on the top it just says hospitality, practicing radically ordinary hospitality in our college context. And the challenge that I want to give us before we head out, before we respond in worship and go back to our separate places around Charlottesville, the challenge I want to give us is to see evangelism. The, The first part in the heart of evangelism is hospitality. I think we live in a culture that's kind of losing the art of hospitality. I mean, we spent a year and a half, like, holding people at a six-foot distance. And I think that did a lot to to give us a fear of welcoming people into our space. And so I I just have this sense that God in this season is calling us back to hospitality. And not just the, the, like, thought of hospitality, but actually practical, lived-out hospitality. In here, I love, uh, you can read through it, but uh, it gives you kind of three, how do we practice hospitality? First is invitation. We give the invitation. Then next is preparation. Like hospitality takes some work. How are we actually preparing to make our space hospitable? And then lastly is execution. And that's in there because we, I think I spend a lot of time thinking about how to be hospitable, but am I actually executing that? And so on the back of this sheet, there's a list of just some ideas that you can do as a core group. But again, the heart of who we are as a fellowship, we talk about like vibrant core groups. And I think one of the things that, would, that makes a vibrant core group is practicing radically ordinary hospitality. And so what we're going to do for the next 10 or so minutes is I want us to get into our core groups and just talk about what can it look like for us to live out radically ordinary hospitality. That when we go back to grounds and we have our core group, that the girls or guys who are in our group but aren't actually in this room, or our friends who are not connected to Chi Alpha. How can we use hospitality as a tool to live out what Blaine talked about, what God is doing in us in this room he wants to do through us? I think about my time in college, I don't, like, me sitting down with Blaine and having theological conversations was fun, but it's not the reason that I follow Jesus. It was the seniors, the fourth years, who invited me over to their apartment on the, like, fourth day of school, and we played Dutch Blitz, and I was like, how many freshmen first years get to say that they hung out with a group of seniors on, like, the first week of school? I, I caught that vision so much that when I was a senior, I could not wait to move into my own apartment and open it up to different people who, I, who were in my core group. Now, granted, all we could afford was one bedroom for four guys, but we had that vision so much that we, this was gonna be a space that we can open up and invite people into.
0: Thank you for listening to the Chi Alpha at the University of Virginia podcast. For more information, you can visit our website XAATUva.com. dot com.